And the first thing, you know, obviously trust is a big thing. And so you have to have a relationship other than uh, a baseball relationship. You have to have a relationship with that person as an individual that, you know, the, the old saying is they don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. And so it's not about, you know, your individual agenda or your wins and losses. It's about doing what's best for the individual player. Hello and welcome to Ahead of the Curve. I am Jonathan Gellner and thank you so much for being here. This episode is brought to you by Baseball Cloud, the official voice of data. Baseball Cloud's revolutionary software platform brings to life the numbers captured by TrackMan and FlightScope. This provides colleges, players, and facility owners around the world a turnkey product, allowing them to analyze their data using key metrics and custom visualizations on one intuitive user interface. The future of recruiting and baseball development is here. Go to BaseballCloud.com to find out how you can have your own data analytics department for your program. Data has a story to tell, and Baseball Cloud gives it a voice. Now, today we have the pleasure of speaking with Jerry Weinstein, and if you don't know Jerry, you're in for a real treat. He is one of the best baseball guys there is at fill in the blank. He could give a presentation over anything, and I would be in the front row taking notes. But on the show today, we talk about practice planning, building the culture for Team Israel in the World Baseball Classic, and some of his favorite stories. We are also running a book giveaway for Jerry's Catching Book on social media, and all you have to do is share or retweet the episode and tag at AOTC underscore podcast and at JW on Catching. The more you share, the better your chances, and we will choose a winner one week after the show airs. Also, make sure to go check out the complete catching package at www.weinsteinbaseball.com backslash products. This includes all of Jerry's best catching products, the complete catching handbook of coaching catchers paperback and ebook, the ultimate catchers pregame drill series digital download, catching skills and drills digital download, and a bonus base running from A to Z digital download, all for just $77 and free shipping. But let's get into the show, and you're going to love this episode with Jerry Weinstein. Jerry, thank you so much for hopping on the mic and being on the show with us today. My pleasure, Jonathan. Looking forward to it. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, as we were talking about off the mic, you are a coaching idol of mine. And I, you know, I've been looking forward to this conversation for a little while. But, you know, for our listeners, talk to us a little bit about your current role and our favorite subject, player development. Well, I'm kind of splitting my time between player development and scouting. What I, I'm, as a matter of fact, I'm, in about a week, I'm heading down to instructional league and I'll be there for 19 days. And then, uh, doing a fair amount of speaking in the fall and then go to spring training. And, and even during that time, I'll, I'll see all the top catchers in the country. So if guys roll through early in the spring, uh, through Arizona, uh, I'll see them. And then after spring training is over, I'll make a swing through the farm system. Not, not for sure, but sometimes I do that. And then the rest of the time I spend, uh, going out and seeing all the top catching prospects in the country. And then uh, after the draft, uh, the Rockies have been gracious enough to let me go work in the Cape Cod League. I, I helped out at Katuit this year, and next year I'll manage in Wareham. And then that's about it. That's awesome. That sounds like a dream. Yeah, it's, it's, it's diverse. It's different. I like going out uh, and uh, where you can just go out and look at one player, and especially just one position, and weigh in. You know, Obviously, when you go out, you see other guys, and you – and, you know, you'll write some guys, other guys up, as a matter of fact. As a matter of fact, uh, last year when I went to University of uh, Mississippi to see a, a catcher, the guy who ended up being our number one pick, uh, Rollison, 
uh, mm-hmm. was pitching, and he was outstanding that night. And and we ended up drafted him number one. If we had not drafted him, we would have drafted a catcher in that spot. But I, you know, for me, that was the right guy to draft, us, even though I was looking at catchers. Well, that's awesome. And I know that you're a catching guy at heart, but you are honestly really good at just about every aspect of coaching. Now, where did that part come from? Did it come from being a junior college coach and having to coach so many different positions every different year, I guess? It's that old saying, you know, necessity is the mother of invention. When I started out, uh, I first started coaching at at UCLA. I coached the freshman team after I was done playing, but then I was a high school coach, Pioneer High School, then back to UCLA, then to Santa Monica High School, and then in the JC. And at the time, you needed, I mean, if you're going to be the head coach, you need to be the head coach of everything. That doesn't mean you have to do everything. Mm -hmm. You have to be able to delegate, but you have to have a, you can't just, without information, turn part of your, your program over to someone and you really don't know if they're any good or if they're philosophically, if they're on the same page as you are. So you need to, and again, having done it, I've been coaching well over 50 years. So, you know, I've had a lot of experiences in, in a lot of different areas. And so, you know, I'm a, you know, growth mindset guy. I want to know as much about this game as I can. And, and fortunately I've have a very large file cabinet just because I've been doing it a long time and have and been involved coaching every area of the game. Oh, absolutely. So a couple of, well, uh, you know, you met, you got the opportunity to manage Team Israel in the World Baseball Classic, and that's a really tough, you know, tough spot to be in as a manager who you don't know your players all that well. And you guys did an awesome job. Like you, you guys did a fantastic job of building the team in a really short period of time. So talk to us about how you went about your business doing that, because you knew you weren't going to get to have those guys for an extended period of time. So how did you build that culture in such a short period of time? Well, you know, the culture is the culture. If you if you recruit the right guys, they come with the right culture. Sure. And fortunately, uh, we vetted every player that we that we selected or as best we could. And actually, the process you know, I had a year to to do the qualifier. Uh, you know, where we were collecting names and, and, uh, I had really good help. Uh, I had a young kid, uh, a scout with Houston at the time named Alex Jacobs, uh, and uh, Joe Rosenthal, two young scouts who really helped me vet players and, uh, and find players. And it was difficult, A, finding players. And then once you found them, B, that they wanted to play and C, that the organizations would let them play because mm-hmm. the qualifier was, was in September. Right after a long minor league season, they had played 140 games, a lot of them, and most of them were toast. And so we knew what we wanted to do. We knew that we would not have the elite arms. So we opted to to get as many as we could so that we could match up. And in a short tournament, that strategy worked out, worked out well for us uh, because we beat two really good teams with good players in, in Great Britain and Brazil. And then once we had qualified and uh, – we were uh, headed to Asia to play in the in the actual WBC in the first pool. Uh, we thought, well, this is going to be a lot easier. Now we'll get some forty man guys, and uh, we'll find and it'll be no problem. And that just was not the case. All the uh, the the premier name players, a they were you know young guys who were trying to make ball clubs and didn't want to leave spring training, or little older guys that were switching teams or were on teams and didn't want to go four and five time zones away. And uh, so it was a difficult process, uh, but a very 
in the end, a very rewarding process because we got some premium people and all, they were all, we had a lot of, we had some veteran players. We had Marquis and, and, uh, we had Josh Zide and we had LeBarnway and, uh, we had, uh, I'm, I'm missing a lot of people. I can't sure. go over everybody's name, Nate, Nate Fryman and, and Ike Davis and, uh, Sammy Fold and, uh, Blake Galen, but we had just a lot of really good people and they were there for the right reason. They, uh, they were, there was, there were no hidden agendas. It wasn't about them. It was a, every was team oriented and, and in a short series, you know, the older guys over 162 games probably wouldn't have held up, but, uh, and the matchups when we couldn't match up every night like that, but we were able to do it in, in Korea. And then again, in Japan, and we just ran into to too much talent in, in Japan. And we had beaten the Netherlands in, uh, Seoul, they had nine big league players on the field. Mm -hmm. And I think that I'm not saying they took us lightly because I think that we did an exceptionally good job and we beat them. And then, and then it was a different, uh, a different story in uh, Seoul or in uh, Tokyo. And then the, the, uh, but we did beat the Cubans there. And then we lost to a really good Japanese team who, well, they played in the finals against the United States and, uh, uh, they just out talented us and outplayed us that night. No doubt. No doubt. Now, you guys, again, you didn't have a, a really long time to go over everything that you would have probably wanted to. And I'm just imagining to myself, you know, I, I coach high school baseball and I just, it takes us an entire season to develop the camaraderie and, and do, you know, do the, the different communication things that you need to do to be successful. How, I mean, just kind of talk us through what was really important. And you were like, okay, we've only got a short period of time. These are the things that we really have to go over to make sure everybody's on the same page. Is there anything that stands out to you? Well, the, the most important thing was everybody was committed to winning mm. and that we're trying to win this thing. And it doesn't matter uh, who has the best team. I, I always I told those guys, hey, it, it's, it's not the it's not the nine best. It's the best nine. Mm -hmm. And we play, you know, we had a common cause and, and uh, uh, we played with um, an edge with a chip on our shoulder and uh, we kept it simple. You know, we didn't, we didn't make it complicated. We kept it really simple. We didn't put in any complex bunt defenses or pickoffs. We just had, it was very, very, very basic stuff. And we just wanted to make sure that physically our guys were ready to play. And we, mm -hmm. and, you know, the preparation that we did, we, you know, you, you always have to find that sweet spot, you know, you don't want to overwork them and you don't want to underwork them. We just want to make sure that they're ready. And, and those guys were professionals, the guys that we had, and they were ready to play. They took care of themselves. They did what they needed to do. And, and then communicating with those guys, Hey, what do you need? What do you need? You mm -hmm. know, I mean, every, a lot of teams took infield and took extended batting practice. My group, I didn't do that because our guys would rather hit in the cage and, and, and be ready to play in the games with a younger group where uh, it's a development type situation or they need more reps. But these guys were seasoned veterans. They all had, you know, they were five, 10 year veterans of professional baseball or uh, independent league baseball. And uh, they knew what they, they were professional about their preparation. They were ready to play. And we didn't, we didn't have an agenda relative. Hey, this is the way we're going to play. We're going to play the way that's best for you as an individual player. And, you know, you don't want to take BP today. We're hitting on the field. Hey, I have no problem with that. You know, Marquis was funny. Marquis was a guy who says, Hey, I'll play, but I got to be able to take ground balls at short. And I want to take BP every day. <laughs> you know, he's a gamer. He's a gamer. And I, Hey, whatever you need to do, you just be able to post up and give us that 
60 to 75 pitches when we needed to throw, well, like two, three times. And, and he was, he was, he was good. And he was a, an integral part of this team and totally committed. Well, that's, that's fantastic. And I love that you're able to get to know those guys. And again, it's such a short period of time. And me being a, a younger coach now, uh, what would you tell our young, our really young coaches who are just getting into baseball about, you know, how do you, how do you get to understand what your players need? And it's still always a really tough balance, but you know, being in the game for so long as yourself or is so seasoned, I guess I should say, how do you get to re- a read on the guys? Like what is, what's your best advice on that? Well, it's a relationship game. The first thing, you know, obviously trust is a big thing. And so you have to have a relationship other than uh, a baseball relationship. You have to have a relationship with that person as an individual that, you know, the, the old saying is they don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. Sure. And so it's not about, you know, your individual agenda or your wins and losses. It's about doing what's best for the individual player. And, uh, and that's a, you know, you only find that out by a developing trust where you have a relationship with them other than just in baseball where you're concerned about, you know, what they're doing off the field and anything that you can do, not being intrusive or anything like that, but they need to understand that you're looking out for their best interests. But there's also a fine line balancing what's best for the team and what's best for the individual player. And when you're in a team environment, they have to understand that what's best for the team always trumps what's best for the individual player. But it, it's not a it's not an either or situation. You know, you can do what's best for the player and still have it come out with uh, what's best for the team. So again, it's that relationship. It's not being the smartest guy in the room, or uh, and it's a collaborative thing. Mm-hmm. It's not me telling you what to do. And you being codependent on me, it's us working together. Now, I always tell young coaches that my job is to eliminate my job. The best lessons are self-taught, that the, the players have to figure things out. And we just, you know, we kind of lead them. We're, we're kind of like uh, we're the guardrails on a, on a freeway. We just keep them from running off the freeway or getting on the wrong road. And, uh, you know, I try and as much as possible with young players, involve them in the development process so that uh, when I'm not there, they can do it. Oh, for sure. And I think, you know, I, I've only been coaching, this is, I'm just starting year seven. And I think that the more that I'm in, that I'm in it, I, that relationship key is obviously, or that relationship piece is obviously a huge key to it. But I also think that I was really afraid to have hard conversations whenever I was younger and I still don't like it, but if they hear it from you and they hear that it's sincere and you've already built that relationship piece to it, then I think that in the end, it's it's so much easier on them, and and they have more respect for you from that. So I think that you know having those hard relationships or having those hard uh, conversations is is you know again it's hard, but I think that like you like you mentioned earlier that communication has to be a huge pillar of what you're trying to accomplish as a coach. Well, I think transparency is really key. You know, a lot of times we'll beat around the bush and sugarcoat mm-hmm. things, and I'm not talking about being a mean tough guy. I'm talking about and I tell in professional baseball, one of my first conversations with my team, when we, when we break spring training, we sit in the locker room. I said, Hey, if we're going to be good. Uh, you got to tell each other what they need to hear, not what they want to hear. That's good. And, uh, you know, I think that being honest, uh, that doesn't mean that you're attacking them. You might attack you, and attack is a bad word, but you may talk to them about the choices that they made in terms of what effect it's going to have on them and what effect it's going to have on the team and making people accountable and you know if they need to be 
you know, ultimately each person is responsible for his own actions. And, you know, I don't abdicate their responsibility by, you know, telling them it's going to be okay. I'm a, I'm a real estate, you know, mm-hmm. you want to play in the big leagues. Uh, this is what you got to do. This is what big league players too. And the way you're going, the choices you're making right now, they're, they're probably not conducive to you being able to accomplish what you want to accomplish. And I always tell them, I said, look, when you're all, when everything's said and done and you look in the mirror, you're not going to probably say, gee, I wish I hadn't worked so hard. I wish I hadn't worked so smart. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll always have a certain amount of regrets and we want to minimize those regrets because there's nothing more common than a man with talent who has failed. Mm-hmm. You know, and how, there's so many guys that could have been good if, and you know, sometimes it's uncomfortable. They're un- it, they're uncomfortable, but the, uh, being uncomfortable is a good thing because there's a there's a lot of uncomfortable aspects, not only about athletics but life in general. And sometimes you just have to be comfortable being uncomfortable and still function. And uh, you know, adversity is a great teacher. And uh, sometimes that's that's how you know where you are, and and that's how you you develop a a uh, roadmap to where you want to go. Definitely. Adversity is a great teacher. I love that line. And, and it's, that is absolutely so true. But, you know, a couple of years ago, I heard you on a podcast and I found you on Twitter. This is when Twitter, you know, was just starting, I guess. And, and I sent you a DM and I said, Hey, you, you talked about practice and how important practice is to a program just, you know, because I was like, Oh, maybe he'll reply. And you sent me this very, very, very long DM. And I loved it. I have it saved on uh, some of my files that, that I've got. And one thing that really stuck out to me was you talked about having Oregon duck-like practices. Now, this is when, you know, Chip Kelly was at Oregon and they were just rolling, right? And I would like to know, you know, can you give us some tips to get the most out of our practices? You know, what do we spend too much time on, not enough time on, and et cetera? Just give us, a, you know, your best advice on how to run an efficient practice. Well, the, 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 the basic premise is that you have to practice at game speed or above and game complexity or above. Now I'll give you an, an example. Like uh, and and this is this is endemic for for me in baseball that uh, from the offensive side, ninety nine percent of our time, the majority of teams, uh, the majority of their batting practice is they hit off the tee, they have underhand front toss, and uh, then they'll have coach pitch BP. You know, so here here's let's break those three things down. The tee is nice. And I'm not saying that you don't do some of this, but you have to find the sweet spot. It's kind of like bowling. And if you're too far to the right or too far to the left, you're in the gutter. If there's too much of one thing and not enough of another thing, uh, it doesn't it doesn't work. And for me, like if you take the tee, when you hit off the tee, the ball is going absolutely zero miles an hour. Mm-hmm. It's always the same speed. It's always in the same place. And there's no plane. It's flat. If you take underhand front toss it's always the same speed it's always below game speed the ball is has the wrong plane it's coming up at you and it's always in the same spot and there's no change of speeds if you take bp a good bp pitcher especially in professional baseball and after he's done throwing b his group in bp there's no ball left in the in the cage that's good bp so basically he's aiming for that guy's barrel it's all the same speed it's below game speed and it has no plane it's flat and so what happens uh, the good hitters they can match their swing plane to the plane of the pitch in the game now the plane of the pitch in the game is from 10 inches above home plate Mm -hmm. it's on a downhill plane 
Some of them are fast, some of them are slow, some of them are inside, some of them are outside, some move to the right, some move to the left, some with high spin rate fastballs don't move very much. And so we're really not preparing hitters for that that event. It's like practicing walking through football practice and all of a sudden you get out there and all of a sudden the game is going so fast. And that's what Chip Kelly did. He sped the game up and uh, guys were not not ready for that because they were practicing at a comfort level. Sure. And you need to challenge people. You need to make them uncomfortable. I'm not saying 100% of the time. I'm not saying don't hit off the tee. Don't hit off front toss. For me, don't hit underhand front toss. I'd hit overhand front toss. And don't, you know, coach pitch BP to get loose and stuff like that. And I always, I think you have to use the machine more in, in batting practice. Mm-hmm. And what I like to do is have a mix. And, and then, for instance, uh, you know, you, you watch big league batting practice and the coach is pitching and guys are, 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 are destroying the furniture in the third deck and they've got this swing, swing plane that matches the pitch plane, which is too flat. For me, you raise the mound up higher. So you put some risers on your platform so that you're throwing more on a downhill plane, more realistic to game okay. because you're developing a, a swing plane that is not going to work in the game. You know, and what happens is guys, oh man, I really felt good in BP and they roll over two and pop up one and punch out. And they say, I just can't understand it. I really feel gr- felt great today. Well, mm-hmm. yeah, but everything, the whole equation changed. Now for me, if I'm, if I'm a big league general manager, I'm going to hire four to six BP throwers, pay them plenty of money. They're going to travel with us on the road. They're going to throw all the BP, let the, let the coaches go ahead and coach and, and coach their players and not be so consumed with batting practice and then create some comfort zone batting practice. So guy, I, I think you have to feel good, mm-hmm. but also create some realistic game BP from 60 feet, six inches. Because what happens when you throw, you know, all the BP is at like 35 feet. Well, when the ball comes out of the pitcher's hand at 35 feet, they all see it well because it looks a lot bigger, you know, and the, and they, the guys throw and they show them the ball. Then in the game at 60 feet, six inches, and actually they release the ball maybe from 55 feet. Yeah. You have to identify where that pitch is going to end up and what speed it's going to, and when it's going to get there by your read from, you know, 55 feet to say 35 feet. So now the, the timing and the, the vision, the visual perception is a whole, it's a whole different ball game. And so now we're practicing closer to the way we play. The same thing would be true. You watch guys take ground balls off a fungo and they're nice and easy. And if you just time it, it's probably going to be like 5.6, 5.7. It's nice and easy. Mm-hmm. But what happens in the game when that guy runs 4-1 or 4-2? All of a sudden, you practice at one speed, and now all of a sudden, you have to rush. You have to rush the process in the game. Sure. And so, for me, it's more about quality than quantity. We take batting practice. Guys are swinging every three to five seconds. It's it's aerobic batting practice. They're sprinting through batting practice. In the game, it's every fifteen seconds. We 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 swing too much. Not enough quality, and uh, and we're creating. Bad habits because we practice at too slow a speed and, and and not enough complexity in terms of change of speeds, change of locations. And now a lot of guys, I know I talked to Hensley uh, Mullins, Mullins when he was with the with the Giants and they were struggling uh, against velocity. And all of a sudden he says, "This is bad. We got to do something." So he started to hit off the machine, 
at 90 plus miles an hour. He'd move guys up to 50 feet. And they'd be, when they won the World Series, I don't know what year it was, they were the, they had the highest batting average against 95 plus. And, uh, the reason being, I just heard the other day that Goldschmidt practices against the machine that had like 55 feet at Max Velo, mm-hmm. you know, cause you need to warm up, you know, you need to warm up your eyes. Cause the first time you jump out there after seeing 60 mile an hour BP, all of a sudden it's 95. That's a whole different, that's a whole different gig. And, uh, and what happens is guys, when they don't hit, it's about timing and they're either early or they're late. Mm-hmm. And it's not because, well, I got to work on my swing. You know, those guys have taken probably millions of swings. They don't, you don't lose your swing in three days. You don't work. It's not a mechanical thing. It's an external focus in terms of I'm, I'm not tracking the ball well enough. Uh, I don't have a good vision strategy, you know, you know, they, we talk all the time about how important is it is, how important are the eyes? Well, the eyes are everything. You can t- have the greatest swing in the world. If you had a, if you have a bad visual plan or a bad visual approach, no matter how good your swing is, you have no chance, but we don't, we don't train the eyes the way we should with the types of drills that we should because timing is everything. Sure. You know, a bad swing on time has a chance. Mm-hmm. Cause there are a lot, you know, there are a lot of what would be deemed bad swings, you know, guys out on their front foot, but they're on time and they're, and they have good vision. You know, they still have a chance to hit if you, you can't hit blindfolded. And so I think that's a, that, that also factors into it. And then again, you know, with our catchers, you know, in terms of receiving, we set the machine on one pitch in one location and we practice it for the game. I think any of these things we're talking about is about creating a chaotic environment. Mm-hmm. Chaos is good because the game is chaotic. It's not predictable. You know, you would think that big league pitchers are really predictable. Well, the inside edge guys, Kenny Kendrana and, and Randy Istry and, and Jay Donchess, they've shown us that major league pitchers who are the, the greatest target hitters in the world on fastballs only hit their target 24% of the time. And I'm talking about a four foot, four inch miss or more. Mm-hmm. So that just shows how unpredictable it is and how chaotic the game is. It's just, you know, things happen all the time that are not predictable. And we practice kind of block practice that everything is always the same. We hit 15 curveballs in a row. We throw 15 curveballs in a row to practice it. We take every ground ball hit exact. We know where it's going to be right at us or whatever. It's, there's, it's too predictable. Now, you can't be so predictable and challenge a person so uh, drastically that they, they have no chance to be successful. You've got you've got to find the right balance. You know you can't all of a sudden take someone who's got, who has no chance to be successful at a particular drill. You have to, he has to have a, a percentage of time where he can be successful so that then you increase the complexity as a guy gets better. But there's a certain level, a minimum level of expectation. It can't be so hard that they have absolutely no chance. Definitely. And you hit on the, the hitting side quite a bit on that. What, what about the, uh, the pitching practice pitching side, what would you change regarding, you know, PFPs and holding runners? Cause it's kind of the same thing is you're, you're telling your, your guys to switch up their timing and then the PFPs you're hitting them and then they're going to first and you know, they're not making any decisions. Is there any better way that we can do this stuff? Well, number one, if you watch spring training, too often guys are going through the motions. They're not practicing at game speed. The balls aren't hit hard enough. 
They're not, you know, they're covering first base and they're getting there in four and four and a half seconds. We put a stopwatch on it, make it random, you know, where they don't, you know, a PFP environment where you don't know if it's going to be a comeback or you're going to have to cover first base. You're going to have to go to the third base line involved with them delivering a, a pitch, an actual pitch where they have to throw a strike. The more randomness in their, in their throwing, more variable, more random throwing than block throwing. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't times where you block things up because you're working on uh, something more mechanical. But, uh, and again, I'm digressing from your question a little bit. You ta- asked about PFPs and, and uh, picks, but I'll get back to that in a second. But I mean, sure. in, in my, my pitching practice, having a script where I'm throwing particular pitches to particular locations and, and working on making pitches, I think all too often, and it happens a lot. You see it a lot in big league bullpens. You know that starter is throwing his bullpen uh, a day or two days before his next start, and they're always working on something mechanical. Then the game comes, and what what's the requirement of the game? Making pitches. You have to spend a percentage of your time making pitches because that's what's important in game. And nobody cares what it looks like. You know what they care is, you know, the result. Did it have enough movement? Was the speed right? Was the location right? How much deception did it have? You know, all those types of things. And so that, that's important. But getting back to like the PFP piece, you know, just making it realistic, game speed, game complexity from a pick standpoint. You know, I'm a real big believer on every time you go to first base, you go over there to pick the guy off first base. Sure. Now there are, there's, an, there are exceptions if we want to see if, if this guy's going to bunt, maybe that's a little bit different. But if you just hold the ball and go over there with an A move, uh, you can still see a guy flinch into a bunt position or, uh, you know, other things that, that you can see also reaction from base runners. But for me, I don't throw over there unless I, I think I, he's running and I have a chance to pick him off. I think, you know, you're just, we're just putting more information in the computer when we do that. It's just a waste of time. It kills the tempo of the game for both the defense and the umpire. And the other thing is, if you want to hold people on, you need to have an efficient delivery to the plate. Mm-hmm. You need to be, for me, one, two, or better. Uh, the, the the standard in professional baseball is one, three. And guys are successful all the time because that one, three, uh, when I say guys are successful, I get base runners are su- successful all the time because that one, three becomes one, three, six. And then they throw a breaking ball and it becomes one, four, six. And at least 50% of your pitches and all your big pitches in the game are going to be made out of your stretch. And a lot of, a lot of times we allow guys to have three moves. They have their windup, then they have their stretch move when there's no one running or they don't expect them to run. And then they have their stretch move when they think uh, it's a running situation, which is going to be, it's going to be a close game. It's going to be late in the game. And so now you're delivering with probably your third best move, your stretch move needs to be your number one move. For me, if I'm starting young guys or I'm starting in a with a group of young players, JV players or freshmen or even high school players, I'm going to make them pitch out of the stretch until they can be one, two to the plate and generate their maximum arm speed and hit their target and execute their pitches. That's going to be first. Once mm-hmm. you do that, then we'll go gear wind up. And I'm going to eliminate having a slide step or something, other a quick move, whatever it happens, whatever you call a load and go or whatever. Because I have one stretch move, and it's going to be my best delivery. Uh, there's no guesswork, because if you're guessing, if you guess wrong and go with a long leg, that guy's going to beat you. And it's not just the stolen bases. It's 
first to third. It's reading balls in the dirt. It's being on top of the middle infielder so they can't turn double plays. It's a lot of things. It's a runner on third base in a contact situation or a runner on second base in a bunt situation, you know, having more time to generate distance from the base with his uh, secondary lead. I just think, I think it's just important that that's the foundation. Now, when you're talking about one, three or less, are you uh, going to include lefties in that conversation? I'm talking one, two or less. One, two or now, less, that's right. If a lefty doesn't have a move, yes. But our lefties are going to have that. They, they need to have that. That uh, I call it load and go, more of a scissors need a knee move. Mm-hmm. And the reason being that with a runner on second, if we got a bunt situation with a runner on second, we're going to go load and go because I want to have a chance to force that guy out at first at, at third base. The mm-hmm. same same is true if uh, you know runner on first and it's a bunt situation, you know, so that he. He, he gains less distance off the base with his secondary lead. Uh, and also, it's a change of pace to the hitters. Sure. Because something, you know, we leg lift and they load, especially a, a leg kick guy who picks his leg up and hangs. Now I go load and go, and all of a sudden he's got his leg up and he can't get his foot down and he's going to, the ball's by him. Mm-hmm. So it changes the timing for, for changing, changes the timing for the hitter as well. But, if I have a lefty that, and every lefty should have an outstanding move to first base. Absolutely. There's absolutely, it should be, it should be a weapon. The best guy in, in the world is a guy named Mike Mack. And he wrote this little pamphlet called the, the move. And if you're, if you're interested in developing a left-handed move, that's, that's what, I don't even know if it's in publication now, but it's M-A-A-C-K, I think. But you want to develop a good move. That's, that's the template right there. And it's really simple. Really simple. I'm going to have to look that up. And listeners, if I can find that, I'll make sure I put that down in the show notes. And Jerry, I think that, you know, one of the the big things that stands out to me is you are, you know, you're above 70. Are you 74? I'm going to be 75 November 9th. 75 November 9th. And, you know, I think that every single day you're posting something that that I am learning from. And I, I, I can respect that so, so much. And so, you know, talk to us about your own learning. I want to know what your daily routine looks like. And then, you know, what's kind of the latest thing that you've learned that you're really excited about? Well, I think probably the latest thing, I had a lot of experience this summer with track men and spin rates and spin axis and extension and release points. And yeah, I spend a lot of time, you know, obviously in the morning, I'll check my emails and stuff. And I always put something out on, on Twitter and, and I, it's it's funny. I, I I knew nothing about Twitter until maybe four years ago. I, I finished a book that I published, and and a good friend of mine, Alan Jager, uh, the throw long toss throwing guru, who's really a great guy. Uh, and he calls me. He says, "Hey, I see book." He says, "Uh, he says, uh, do you do you do you, do you tweet?" I said, "What are you talking about? I have no idea what you're talking about." It's Twitter. I said, "I don't know what you're talking about." He says, "Do you have a website?" No. He said, well, what are you, what are you going to do to sell your book? Oh, I said, I don't care if I sell any books. I just wanted to write the book in case someone, you know, could use it to help them or a player could use it or a coach. He said, oh, no, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to take care of you. And he taught me, we spent, we talked for daily for about a week and, and I figured out how to do it. And so I'd put uh, snippets from the book on there just to, because I was selling it myself pretty much. And so I, I was putting snippets on and then. Uh, I got a lot of 
responses, you know, and, you know, this is great, blah, blah, this. And then they would ask questions about other stuff other than catching. So I started to put other things in. I got more responses and more responses. And I felt like, hey, this is, you know, it's pretty good. You know, I I can I can help people, mm-hmm. which for me, that, and if it helps the game and helps other people, you know, I'm I'm good with that. As a matter of fact, that's that's what I like to do, uh, especially at this point. And you know, maybe when I was a young coach, I was a little bit more secretive. But now, you know, there are no secrets, and uh, so I got really involved. And there's there's so many good baseball websites or conditioning websites on uh, on the internet that. You know, every day I'm researching something or I get something from someone. I get a lot of stuff from Driveline, Kyle Bodie, and, you know, they've had some good stuff recently on spin rates and spin axis. And I've been up there and, you know, and I want to, you know, I, I am a, I have a growth mindset and I am a lifelong learner. I read a lot and I spend time on the, spend time on the computer. I work out and read and do my stuff and coach and, you know, everything's good definitely and and again i I just want to thank you so much for putting that stuff out there you mentioned that you help a ton of people you're one of the only people that i have my notifications on and and i love that you post just little snippets of videos that you know i would see it and i would go oh that's a cool play and you break it down in a way that i see things that i would have never even thought to look for before and i love that and and again i I just want to say thank you for that and i hope that you continue to do that for a long, long time, but I know you've got to run, and I know this is a really hard question because I know you may not be able to pick one. But can you leave us with one of your one of or a few of your favorite stories from your coaching career? Mm, I'm really, I'm really bad at picking, you know, putting uh, putting things in lists and and stuff like that. But uh, in 1988, I was at Sacramento City College, and uh, we had uh, we had a a pretty good team. Uh, I didn't think it was a great team, and we had been uh, in the state tournament a lot and come in second a lot, and and uh, we're going to play uh, in uh, I think it was at UC Irvine. And yeah, matter of fact, I, my my wife she's not a real baseball fan, but she'll come out during the playoffs, and we were playing down south. She says, "Well, should I go?" I said, "Yeah, I don't know about this group," and so. Uh, and so we we end up going uh, get getting the championship game, and, and I had a little shortstop who uh, is a and played with his hair on fire, and you know, ended up being a, a big league player for seven plus years. Uh, a man named F.P. Santangelo, he's the color guy for uh, uh, the Washington Nationals, and and he was a real spark plug, and and uh, we had. Come back from the losers bracket. We had to win a. Uh, uh, we, we had finished a game like at eleven at night, and, and I threw a loaf of bread and, and a jar of peanut butter and jelly in every room. And guys slept in their uniforms. We were the <laughs> we were the most ragtag group that ever came out, and we had played like four games, and we had to play a team that was undefeated that had uh, guy Bob Hamlin was on the team, and he had hit thirty plus home runs in a JCC. They had an mm. exceptionally good team. And so uh, we like, hey guys, we're not even going to take BP tomorrow. It's going to be a, we're going to call jacket. We're going to show and go. We'll get there and stretch out and play catch and let's win too. And so we get to the ballpark and uh, the, the team we had been playing, uh, they were just finishing BP and and their coaches were taking BP. 
you know, which is all right. You know, they were having a good time, you know, and they figured that we're kicking these guys' butts and we're nice and loose and we got the best players. They did. They had a really good team with a lot of good players. And, and so my little shortstop, yeah, this is BS. <laughs> so he gets there. He gets everybody. He gets everybody up. I had nothing to do with it. They go out to center field. He fires them up. Not that I think that that's important, but, and, and he comes back. He's, there's no way they're beating us today. I said, good. I like that. <laughs> so we, we end up winning the first game. They end, they, it was like 13 to nine and they had the bases loaded with, uh, two outs, three, two count. And we go, we go third to first move and all three runners broke. And we, oh my we gosh, that's pick, awesome. pick one guy off and the game's over. And then the, the second game, uh, we end up scoring four in the seventh or four in the ninth and winning the game seven to three. And, uh, you know, so uh, that was, uh, you know, that's not a great story, but it's a true story. <laughs> and, that's awesome. and that was our, our first state championship. And we went, won a couple more after that in the national championship in 98. And we were, 44 and two, I think. And we had, I mean, the, the story was Sacramento city college was the story. It was such a, such a great environment. We had 30 plus big league players in, in 24 years. And we had, uh, we had a great facility. We built actually we the community helped us build it. It was like a $5 million facility. It was beautiful. I had great coaches and we, and there was, a time where there were great players in Sacramento and the four-year colleges weren't recruiting that area uh, like they are today. And, and kids were going to community college. So we had, it was like a perfect storm, a perfect environment for like 23 years. It was, uh, uh, you know, for me, that's the best story. And it's, it's probably, you know, I've had a chance to coach in the big leagues and that's probably the best job that I've ever had uh, just because of the, the, the people. And, you know, we build it from, the ground up, even though it was a good program before I got there, but you know, it became really an exemplary program and we had good player. We had lots of good players, a lot of internal competition. Didn't have to worry about discipline, you know, guys disciplined themselves and they knew that hey, the guy behind me is just as good as I am. Maybe he's better. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, our practices were very, very intense. We played, you know, almost, and when I say this, people think, yeah, you're, you're really embellishing this situation, but we would play in the fall. We would play close to 200 games because wow. we had two teams. We had two teams that played from September 1st until the week before Christmas because the weather was usually good enough or if it wasn't, we'd still play. Uh, and we played double headers every Friday, Saturday and Sunday with two teams. So the amount of play game play and then we'd you know we'd pretty much go seven days a week and mondays would be a little bit lighter but we would practice and then play on the weekends and guys would i mean every pitcher got a uh, hundred innings batters got every hitter got at least 300 at bats you know and our motto was we'd lose in the fall to win in the spring so guys got better and better and the second guy leapfrogged the first guy and the first guy leapfrogged the second guy and the third guy leapfrogged you know so the internal competition and the facility situation that we had, we had a big park across the street with three fields and we used all of them. Uh, you know, we'd have probably 60 to 80 guys in our program in the fall and it was highly competitive. And, and we had a lot of guys that a lot of good players that went to division division one schools. I think every year for about 10 years, we had a guy on the national championship team, either at Miami, Florida state or, or uh, Cal state Fullerton, uh, and LSU. And so 
that's the best story for me. And, you know, and it was nothing necessarily that I did. We just, uh, it was a perfect storm. Everything was right for a long period of time. And we were just very fortunate with, with the right people and that great coaches that stayed for uh, many, many years. Guys didn't leave, uh, you know, and, uh, I mean, I've had a couple of my guys like, uh, Robbie Cooper's the coach at Penn state mm -hmm. and, uh, Mike new is the coach at head coach at Cal and Andy McKay is the director of player development for, uh, Seattle Mariners. And I mean, you know, the pupils have exceeded the, the, uh, teacher, which is nice. Sure, sure. And I had uh, had Clyde Keller on the show. I had Rob Cooper on the show, and they both mentioned that you were, you know, an awesome influence on them. And and so I was like, well, I've got to, you know, I've got to get the master on. And and so again, thank you so much for getting, you know, on the mic and and sharing with us so so much today in such a short period of time. And and I could listen to you tell stories literally all day. But you know, in closing, is there anything else that you'd like to tell our listeners before you go? Well. You know, figure it out for yourself. <laughs> you know, I think, you know, I think uh, uh, too often we're waiting for people to drop us on the top of the mountain and you got to climb to get there. And, and usually the path of least resistance doesn't get the job done. And there's going to be a lot of negatives and pitfalls along the way and a lot of failures. And, uh, you know, you just got to stay the course. And, and you know, like my really good friend Ken Revisa said, it's one pitch at a time. And, uh, you know, I think that's, you know, that makes you get, just have the right perspective. Thank you for listening to Ahead of the Curve. Before you go, I'd love to be able to get in touch with you, and we have several different ways of doing so. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at AOTC underscore podcast. You can join the AOTC Coaches Facebook group. And if you want to be a part of the mini clinic emails, both of those links are listed below. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a rating or review to help others find and stay ahead of the curve.